to be with you again today as we look again at our Lenten series, Brokenness and Blessing. And in this series, today we're going to be looking at Leviticus. Now I want to know, honestly now, how many of you, your favorite book of the Bible is Leviticus? Oh, we've got a couple. How many of you, when you've tried to read the Old Testament, you end up stopping somewhere in Leviticus because it just doesn't make any sense? All right. I haven't preached in Leviticus a very long time, but we're going to look at the main theme of Leviticus today and how it works God's purpose for our lives, both the brokenness and the blessing. And so as we look at this together, we're going to pick up in the 20th chapter, starting in the 22nd verse. And uh, here is repeated several times a similar theme. And so we hope that you'll catch what God has for us in Leviticus today. This is what uh, Moses writes uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you, because they did all those things, and I abhorred them. But I said to you, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has set you apart from the nations. You must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals, between unclean and clean birds, do not defile yourselves by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground. Those that, have, those that I have set apart as unclean for you. You are to be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, I just pray for your help today. Lord Jesus, uh, you came to bring us truth and grace. And, uh, Lord, that's my heart. I pray that you'll guide my words to be filled with both truth and grace, to help us seek your best and your holiness together. I pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here in Leviticus, to understand the book of Leviticus, you also have to first kind of know what's going on at the end of Exodus, and that's kind of the boring part of Exodus, too. Anybody know what's going on at the end of Exodus? God gives Moses a vision, and in that vision, he is to build a tabernacle. He's to build a tabernacle. That tabernacle represents the presence of the living God among the people of Israel. And so Moses was designed in a particular way, and with the tabernacle, only the most holy chosen of the Israelites, the priests, and maybe Moses, they were the only ones that could actually go in the tabernacle because it was holy. And at this time as well, just the whole experience of God's presence with Israel over these 40 years Remember that Moses was with Israel on the mountain, and when, Mo when the Lord came down from the mountain, he told Israel, here at the foot of the mountain, make sure no animals touch it. Make sure no people touch it. 
if they touch the foot of the mountain with my presence here, they will die because I'm holy. And in the Old Testament, there is this sense that the Lord speaks the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel, and it sounds like a blaring trumpet. And by the end of the Lord telling the Israelites the Ten Commandments, they're saying, oh, please, Moses, you talk to God. It's too much for us. Uh, We would rather stay here and just you tell us what he says. Because God is holy. God is holy. And it's in that sense, again, going back to this building of the tabernacle, on Sabbath, on Saturday morning perhaps, Israel would gather together around the tabernacle and they would worship the Lord together. The cloud and pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud would be there to know that the Lord's presence was there. Moses would go in and when he would come out, he would be different. He would be changed. His face would glow with holiness, right? And so only the priests could go in the tabernacle, but there was one particular area of the tabernacle that wasn't just holy. It was the holy of holies. It was the place of intimacy with the living God where the Ark of the Covenant was. And in that place, only one person, the high priest, which at that time would have been Aaron, Moses' brother, only one person could go into that sacred space once a year, and they'd go in with bells on the fringe of their garment, and a rope tied around their ankle because if they went in unprepared, the people had to be ready to pull them out uh, if they, you know, if they got zapped by the holiness of God. The holiness of God is a significant component of who God is. And so Leviticus is the message of what it means to be holy like God is holy. And so how... Well, if the question for us is, God, what do you want for my life? God's answer from Leviticus is this. Be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. That is to be our pursuit. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the writer says, Be holy because there is a holiness without which we will not see the Lord. Holiness is required to be God's kingdom people. And so in the midst of this, the question comes, well, okay, God, how do we, how are we to become holy like you are holy? And with this, we both find in Leviticus and in the New Testament some guidance. The first lesson we see is verse 22. To be holy, you need to keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that when you get to the land I'm bringing you to, the land will not vomit you out. So the first principle is keep to the rules right? Keep to the Ten Commandments, keep to all the Old Testament rules, do what God wants us to do. How did Israel do with that, everybody? Not very good at all. How do we do with that? Not a whole lot better, right? And so because of that, when Jesus came on the scene, he shifted the focus away from the rules and instead to faith, right? And so Peter talks about Leviticus in 1 Peter chapter 1, And this is what he shares with us about what following the rules means for us. Therefore, with minds that are alert, you're fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. 
As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Both here in 1 Peter and in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, which we don't really know who wrote Hebrews, but there is the emphasis shifted away from following rules, and instead it basically says, Be open to the grace of God, and let the grace of God be your hope in Jesus Christ. And so the first principle to holiness is have faith in Jesus, right? Have faith in Jesus and his grace. And allow his grace to transform our lives and to make us new, to make us holy. That's the first principle he shares. And the second thing he says that Peter writes, and we see it also in Leviticus, is because ultimately we are to be counter a we're to be countercultural people. We're to be countercultural people. Both in uh, Peter and in Leviticus here, Leviticus kind of shares it in a weird way. It says, you know, uh, you don't want the land to vomit you out. You don't want to live like the people who were there before you. I'm going to drive them out because they didn't do what I wanted them to do. And so when you inherit the land of milk and honey, uh, you know, you need to live uh, more like me. And so this second piece is we're to be a countercultural people, a countercultural church. Now, how did Israel do at this? Again, not great, uh, but by, say, Roman days, I mean, it was obvious to Rome that the Jewish people were kind of weird, right? I mean, they wouldn't worship Zeus. They, wouldn't, they really didn't want to worship Caesar, which everybody was supposed to do, and they wouldn't worship all these other gods. They just liked their own god, and that was it. And then they ate kind of crazy. They wouldn't eat barbecue with the Romans. Uh, you know, they wouldn't go over to their house. All these things, they were just different. And that was a part of being holy. And so today for us as a church as well, how are we at being counterculture? How are we at, at being different from secular culture around us? And the answer again is, we struggle just as much as everybody else, right? There's about as much divorce inside the church as there is outside the church. There's about as much unfaithfulness inside the church as outside the church. There's definitely, you know, there could be as much hatred or anger or, uh, or greed. All those things affect us as much as they affect the world. But yet we have the Lord say to us, you are to be holy for I am holy. And one of the things we declare in the Nicene Creed and some of the other creeds is we believe in the holy Catholic Church. That there is something about us getting together that should reflect the holiness and does reflect the holiness of God. And so that's the second component is we are to be a countercultural community. We're to be different. And then the third thing is, is we then go, how do we be different? The first example they give us is watch what you eat. Eat the clean foods, don't eat the unclean foods. Eat the clean birds, don't defile yourself with the unclean birds. It, and so the question often comes to those who don't know the Bible very well, say, well, 
Christians, you don't do that anymore. Why do you not do that anymore? And the reason is, is that the rules that were made in Moses' day were very practical, concrete kinds of rules. They were basic rules that made it easy for people to, for the Jewish people to see we are different from everybody else. So part of those rules had to do with making sure you didn't have any skin diseases like leprosy. Part of those rules had to do with making sure there's no mildew or mold in your house that was going to make you sick. And part of those rules were what you chose to eat. And you didn't choose to eat pork, and you didn't choose to eat shrimp. You stuck with fish, you stuck with uh, you know, chickens, you stuck with other things. But in the New Testament, when we get to Jesus' day, Jesus says, okay, you know you're different now. You know you're supposed to be clean. You know you're supposed to be holy. But what does cleanliness really mean? What does holiness really mean? It's really not about food, right? And so when we come to Mark's gospel, chapter 7, and I think I shared this a few weeks ago, we come to Mark's gospel, and in Mark's gospel, Jesus tackles this question. He says that, you know, the, the, his disciples were eating with unclean hands, and so they got into this discussion about eating, and he said, are you so dull, verse 18, chapter 7, don't you see that nothing that enters the person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, it goes into their stomach and then out to the body. And so Mark has a comment here. He says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. But then Jesus goes on, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, like sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So again, Jesus takes Leviticus and refocuses it and says, okay, it's not about ritual, it's not about food, it's not about cultural stuff anymore, it's about moral stuff. It's about what goes on in the heart. And to be a clean person, really, to be a holy person has to do with how your heart is doing as a human being. Is it loving? Is it kind? You know, the, the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law, right? And so here... Uh, Jesus gives us this clue to what it means to be holy like God is holy. God wants to work on our heart in that case. And so when we go back and re read Leviticus and clean and unclean, we understand that was to teach the Israelites what it was all about. And now Jesus has shifted it to morality in our hearts. So what does this kind of countercultural life look like? Well, Leviticus shares some other pieces to this. One of the pieces that Leviticus shares is there is a piece to this that modern culture would probably label something like social justice. There is a piece to this that modern culture would say is social justice or social holiness. That is that we need to be doing things that care for everybody. We need to be doing things like making sure that if you're poor and hungry, you can have a place to find some food. Israel had a way where when you 
harvested your crops. You left a little bit of food for the poor so that if they came by, like uh, Naomi and Ruth were one example, they could gather the food they needed and be able to live even if they didn't have their own property. Other things like uh, running your business fairly, making sure you didn't cheat your customers, making sure you paid your employees on time. Those are all Old Testament Leviticus laws that still make a ton of sense to us today. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that what is the second and greatest commandment. Where did that come from? It came from Leviticus. We're to love our neighbor as ourself. We're not to hate our neighbor. And in addition to this, um, also how we're to treat our neighbor who is different from us significantly. Verse 33 sticks out, and as the church, the modern church, we don't like to, some of us don't like to hear this verse, but, but we need to. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner who speaks a different language or looks different or has a different culture, the, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. You know what it feels like. I am the Lord your God. Right? And so there's this piece in here that, that we struggle with some today. With, you know, such a multicultural nation. Yet we are, if we're to be holy people, it means valuing those who are different from us, who are our neighbors in our midst. Because we remember when Maybe we were not valued in the past as well. And so all these components are there. And then on the flip side, holiness in Leviticus also has to do with sort of what you might call regular moral guidance, right? The Ten Commandments kind of stuff. Honor your father and mother. Respect your elders. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't hate people. All those kind of things come through the book of Leviticus. It tries to give us a whole picture of what holiness looks like, both individually and as a community. We are supposed to live a certain way that's fair, that's just, that's right, that, that treats one another with love. And so we are to be holy as the Lord is holy. Because as he said, one of the interesting things in the ancient world is they believe the consequences of not being this kind of people meant that eventually the land would kind of spit you out or kick you out, and then God would invite somebody else in, right? And I know maybe we'd question that theology some today, but, but it basically goes on saying is that successful cultures tend to be cultures that love one another. They tend to be cultures that are kind. They tend to be cultures that don't hate. They tend to be cultures that aren't violent. They tend to be cultures that try to stay on a healthy human path. And so that is what is lifted up in the scriptures in Leviticus as to be holy as God is holy. And then there is this extra piece. There's this extra piece on, uh, on being a human sexual creature. Uh, the biggest amount of sexual ethics in the Bible is in Leviticus. Uh, there's all sorts of pieces to the sexual ethics put there. Perhaps the most famous part that gets talked about most in our day and our age is the homosexual piece. 
but we need to realize that that piece is like 5%, and the 95% has to deal with how, uh, how, other, how we as heterosexual folks live out our lives in a healthy way as human beings. And that's really what God is after. As we talk about, uh, the Bible talks about we are broken people. We are sinners. And as broken people who are sinners, um, one of the areas where we find the greatest brokenness in our lives and in our culture is in the sexual area. It's a challenging place to stay healthy sexually. And so Leviticus tries to help us do that. And as I said, 95% of the verses have to do with how we behave towards our family, towards our neighbors, towards other couples. But there is this little verse, and it's the verse that's kind of splitting our church, so to speak, that has taken the most heat. And that's the verse on same-sex behavior. I'm going to talk about that for a little now. I'm going to try to do it in a way that is both filled, I hope, with truth and grace, because I think that's what Jesus tried to do, and I'm not trying to talk about it in a way to encourage us to choose whether to stay United Methodist or leave the United Methodist Church, but I want to do it in a way that I hope helps you understand at least how I wrestle with this issue, and maybe if you're wrestling with this issue, maybe it will help you too. The first helpful uh, thing I can share is there's this fellow named Mark Ogney, and he uh, does ministry in the area of human sexuality. And he gave this illustration to the struggle that the church is facing today. And here is uh, kind of how he explains it. He says, you know, you've heard about families where there's an alcoholic in the family, right? And how the alcoholic affects the whole rest of the family. It affects the wife who enables, or you know, maybe the spouse who enables it. It'll affect the kids. And the ways that, way it affects the kids is in this way. The oldest kid in an alcoholic family will tend to be the new parent, the responsible one who makes sure everything is taken care of for their siblings and the younger generation. They're the good boy or the good girl that takes care of the family. Then there's the youngest person in the family. They may be the hider. They just try to disappear and hope it goes away. And so whether that's reading books or playing video games or hanging out in their room, the way they deal with it is to hide. But then there's the, the, the second oldest in the family, and they are often the black sheep. They're often the one who finds a way to be blamed for all the troubles that's going on in the family. It's all their fault. And so they're the ones that are lifted up and say, look at this group, look at this person. They're the ones that are causing trouble in our family, and so they are the scapegoat. All the blame goes on the second child in order to save face for the family. And what Mark Ogney says is how the church is wrestling with sexuality in the 21st century is similar to this. We have an alcoholic family. It's called the sexual revolution that occurred in the 1960s. And as a church, we still haven't quite figured out how to handle that, how to live through it, and how to, how to be holy in the midst of it. And as a result, in the church, we've kind of fallen into different places. 
And there's the elder brother place. And the elder brother or the elder sister place is the one who's trying to be the good one who's shepherding the family. And that often is the maybe the traditionalist or the evangelical or kind of however you want to phrase it. They're the ones that are you know, trying to be high and holy and guide others and say, hey, we need to do this too. But then we also have this second sibling in the church and in the family. And that's the part that we dump on. And that's the community of the LGBTQIA folks. And we say, well, they're the problem. If we could just fix them, then our nation would be okay or our church would be okay. And Mark says it's not really fair. It's just the sign of an unhealthy family trying to wrestle with something in an unhealthy way and putting the blame in one area that's not, it doesn't really deserve to go there. And so as I've talked with you about this, you've probably seen how I try to show as much love and care and respect for folks that I know who are very likely wired differently than I am. And that's because I, it's not right to shame uh, and dump on one part of our family. But at the same time, Leviticus calls us to holiness. And Leviticus does talk about same-sex intimacy being something that God really doesn't want us to do. Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's mentioned about this. And the best, one of the best explanations that I've found um, and I know there's debate about how to interpret this, but one of the best is that, and Tim Keller is the one that mentions this. Tim Keller is a, a traditional Presbyterian pastor up in New York. has just a, a great heart and a great mind. What Tim Keller says is this, that God shapes our sexualness in a way, the sexual ethic that we are to have, a holy sexual ethic, a healthy sexual ethic, is to be one that promotes human flourishing. It is designed to promote human flourishing. And what does that mean? Well, think back to Genesis, right? When God created men and women, what's one of the first things he said to them? Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Um, and so to do that, then in chapter 2 of Genesis, he gives us the pattern for how that is to be the healthiest and the most successful. A man and a woman committed in a covenant relationship for life, right? That's the picture that's kind of shared. This is the pattern. That relationship for thousands of years has been the fruitful relationship. It's the relationship that's able to have children and grow families. It's the relationship where, with a man and a woman, we're both different. Andrea and I, we're not wired the same. She knows that. I know that. She knows that when she tells me something over here and I'm engaged in, you know, watching the soccer game here, and she says, Chris, 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 what? I've been telling you for five minutes this. Oh, sorry, I was seeing if uh, Messi was going to score, right? Men and women were wired different, and that... When that works well, it fits together well. When it's healthy, it can be very healthy. And God says, it's this fruitful relationship that I've created and designed to help humanity flourish. And 
especially in ancient history, this was an important piece, right? Because 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, um, we're starting to learn genetics-wise that there were a whole lot more female genes in our gene pool than there are male genes. You see, to be a man in the ancient world was tough. You, like, had to go to war every year. And so if you didn't keep having healthy families, if you didn't keep having children, then uh, next thing you know, the bigger tribe over here with the faster chariots and the sharper bronze swords, they could eat your lunch and you'd be gone. And so with God's guidance here, it was a guidance, be fruitful and multiply. And the way to do that is men and women for a lifetime. And so with that, uh, the Bible, I don't think, ever really conceptualized where we are today, and kind of where we are today is this. There's also, in this modern age, a component of sexual identity, of sexual identity. And that's kind of a new thing. That's not something we worried about, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. But scientifically, there is legitimacy to some people being wired differently. And that's okay. And with this, to look at where we are now, what's the good and the bad of the change in our culture on these issues? And with human sexuality, I think there is some good that has come to our nation and to our civilization over the last 20, 30, 40 years. And there is also some not good. What's part of the good? Well, part of the good is this. Um, if you were a person that struggled with sexual identity 20, 30, 40 years ago, the culture was such that you could get, well, you could get beat up. You could get talked to verbally in abusive ways. I mean, we just, we talked about people. We harmed people. We hurt people. We discouraged people. We treated them like they weren't fit to live in some cases. And I don't think, in fact, I know that's not what Jesus wants. And so in a sense, that we're in a better place. A second area where we're in a better place is young people who struggle with this, really struggle with it. Evidence shows that they are four times more likely to commit suicide than others their age. That's like one attempted suicide every 45 seconds. That's not good. That's not something that God wants. And so hopefully in these areas, the positive is, is that for those who really struggle with sexual identity, that they can know that they, in our culture today, they're going to be more loved, more respected, have more opportunities for fair treatment, and all those other things. That's good. But also today, in our culture, there are some negative impacts as well that concern me, and my guess is concern several of you too. Probably the biggest example of this that I can think of is the cultural impact, the cultural piece. Uh, and let me kind of put it this way. For thousands of years, um, sex has been an idol for humanity. It's been a temptation for us, uh, whether through pornography or through sleeping around or whatever. It's been a temptation 
that has led to human brokenness uh, just for thousands of years. It's always been a temptation. It always will be a temptation. And the sexual revolution in the 1960s, by and large, made the temptation worse. And the advent of the Internet and all the stuff that can now be seen on the Internet, it makes it worse. So that we now have a culture that's being framed and coached by just unlimited, unhealthy sexual images and unhealthy sexual... I mean, it's just out there. But that's always kind of been there. And so the new layer with sexual identity is as well now with things changing culturally in this place. Um, sexual identity, I think for some, not for all, but for some, is also becoming a place of idolatry. Sexual identity is sort of taking the highest stage, the most important focus for some people. And I don't think that's a healthy thing either. An example of this would be to share kind of recent statistics that have come out. Uh, I'm Gen X, so if you're my age or older, the chance of you wrestling with your sexual identity tends to be about 3 or 4% of us have genuine wrestling with our sexual identity, 3 or 4%. For our millennial brothers and sisters, that number has jumped from 3 or 4% to 10%. And for the younger Gen Y that is now entering, starting to enter their 20s, or Gen Y, Gen Z, whatever the youngest one is, they're starting to enter their 20s. For them, it's 20%. Um, we're wrestling with new things very quickly. And what does God want? God wants holiness. He wants us to be healthy. He wants our children to be healthy. He wants our communities to be healthy. And that comes with a holy, healthy sexual identity, understanding that there's a sacred component to who we are sexually. And that's a concern. That's a concern. You know, I don't know that we're going to be able to change the culture, but that's the piece where how do we as a church still try to lift up healthy human sexuality and say, you know, you don't have to sleep around, you don't have to experiment, you don't have to do all this stuff. Instead, let Jesus be with you in the journey. Because this is the last piece. Where do we go from here as a church? Where do we go from here in your interactions with family members, some family members who you know struggle with their sexual identity in some way, shape, or form? Where do we go from here? Um... The last part of Leviticus, actually it's the first chapters of Leviticus, talk about when we give an offering to the Lord, we are to give an offering that's our very best. When you give the Lord an offering, you don't give Him the leftovers. You don't give Him what you don't need. You don't give Him the blemish. You give God the very best. That's what we're to offer to the Lord. That's what holiness looks like in our generosity. And as God thought about that, what he could do for us is offer us the very best. And so in offering us the very best, that was Jesus. And so this is what he says at the, uh, the next part of 1 Peter. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors or handed down to us from secular culture, 
but it is with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. He was revealed in the last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God, in Jesus Christ. Jesus died for all. He died for us. He died for people that struggle with sexual identity. He died for everybody. And he is the source of forgiveness and hope and salvation for all of us. He is the worthy sacrifice. And so whoever we are, wherever we are, if you wrestle with God's call to be holy as he is holy, here's the advice that I try to live out, I hope you live out. And this is advice you can share with your family members or neighbors who struggle with their sexual identity because I think it can be very helpful for all of us. And that is this. In your life, the best decision you can ever make is to surrender your life to Jesus. Let him be your primary identity. Let your identity become one with Jesus Christ. More than any other identity in your life, let Jesus be number one. Because if you'll let him be Lord of your identity, whether it's sexually or relationally or in your job or in your family, if you'll let him go along with you in the journey, I trust he will get you where you need to go. And he'll do in you what he needs to do to see you to the kingdom. And then the second thing I would say is this, is like Peter in Hebrews mentioned, our call as Christians, we, we're, we're in this world, we're not of this world. So as a result, we are to be hungry for holiness. We are to be hungry for holiness. We are to be hungry to have a heart and love and kindness like Jesus. And a big part is, of that is really the love peace. When John Wesley talked about being made perfect, right? As Christians, we are being made perfect. What is he talking about? He's talking about God is trying to make us holy and get us in a holy relationship with him. What does that look like? John Wesley said it's perfect love. Perfect love for God who made us. Perfect love for our neighbors. No matter who they are or what they look like or how they act or how messed up their life is. That's what it's all about. And so... Uh, there is a holiness without which we will not be able to see the Lord. So Leviticus reminds us, be holy as I am holy. Because ultimately, um, I can't, I can only try to figure out how God wants me to live life in my body. Right? That's hard enough for me. I don't know exactly how God wants to make you holy in your body because your body may be wired differently from mine, and if it's still similar to mine, you, you got your hands full too. But I can encourage you, wherever you are, whoever you are, to let Jesus be your identity. I can encourage you, pursue holiness, and if you'll let the Holy Spirit do those things in your life, then I trust that God is going to finish what he started in you. And I don't know exactly what that'll look like, but I know that it'll look an awful lot like Jesus. And I think that's what the Father wants. I'll close with this. I know we talk about sort of the divides in the church, right? And where we are. I know there's traditional folks in the church 
they'll come up to me and say, Chris, what I want people to know is I don't hate LGBTQIA people. I don't wish ill on them. You know, I know I'm supposed to love them, and I do love them, and I, I'm not homophobic. I'm not afraid of them. Um, I just believe that Scripture still has something to say about our sexual ethics. And then on the other side, you know, what I hear my progressive, a little more progressive friends say is, Chris, what I want my brothers and sisters to know is, is I agree with the Scripture that we're called to have healthy sexual ethics and we're called to live healthy sexual lives that are faithful and permanent. And I might draw the lines a little differently, but I still believe in that. And, then, and I think uh, for us, we are seeking together how to let Jesus be in charge and how to let the Holy Spirit lead to make us holy like God is holy. Because when we are holy like God is holy, then we get to go like the priest and see God face to face. And that's awesome. And uh, my prayer is that God will help us be that kind of people. Amen? All right, it's a tough one for me today. Thanks for praying for me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, I just pray today that wherever we are, that we'll realize that we can keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing with you, Lord, is that we allow you to become our primary identity. You're the one we're to worship. You're the one we're to adore. You're the one we are to put first. And if we will do that and invite you on the journey with us, we trust you to get us where we need to go in the kingdom. And Father, part of that journey is allowing your Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does. And that is make people holy and make us more like Jesus and help us learn how to love one another better and to love all people better and to know, help people know that we want to be a community where all are welcome to seek and hunger and thirst for God's best. And so, Lord, help us take those next steps. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you join us in singing in the altars always open, but have thine own way, Lord.